morning. Romans chapter 3. Looking at verses 9 through 18. So I would invite you to open your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one of the blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. Turn to page 940. In those blue Bibles, that will bring you to Romans chapter 3. We're looking at verses 9 through 18. We began looking at these verses last week. So this is part 2. We're still in this section. If you weren't here, I would invite you, encourage you to go online and listen to last week's message because there will be a lot that I covered there that I won't recover this week for sake of time. Also inside of your bulletins is an outline. I would invite you to follow along in the outline just so you know where we are in the, in the message. As I said last week in this section of Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18, it summarizes well the doctrine or the teaching of total depravity. Total depravity. So if you weren't here, just let me remind you a little bit of what we said. That is that human beings in their natural state, as they are born, are thoroughly contaminated by sin and under the power of sin. They are naturally in a state of moral corruption. So contrary to what many people think and say, human beings are not basically good. They are not basically good, but rather God's word teaches that we are all born as depraved sinners, meaning we are naturally bad and therefore guilty before God and unable, and this is important, unable on our own to make ourselves right with God, to make ourselves acceptable to God. Again, I mentioned last week that the word total in that phrase, total depravity, which is just a term that Bible scholars use to apply to the teaching that they find in God's Word, and specifically, especially here in three, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. The word total does not mean that people are necessarily as bad as they can be. That's important to understand. But it does mean that all people in the world, born into this world, are as bad off as they can be. Because the entire person, the total person, that's what the word total means, every part of them, their mind, their thinking apparatus, their, their heart, uh, where they make their decisions, their will, their emotions even, every part of a human being born into this world is tainted or contaminated by sin, unfortunately. Now, I heard a news story this week about global warming. Maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. It didn't get a lot of press, but I found it somewhat amusing, and I want to share it with you and talk about how I think it connects with total depravity. Are you guys familiar with the idea, the concept of global warming, that basically our Earth is heating up because of who knows why? I don't, you know, I mean, it's, they say that it's heating up because we're doing bad things, burning oil, fossil fuels, so on and so forth, right? And we've got to put an end to that. We've got to stop the world, stop the world from heating up because eventually... All the ice will melt and then we'll all be flooded out. I don't know. You know, you, you, you get the idea. You've heard this before, global warming. Okay. So here's a study that concluded that global warming could lead to more violence. To more violence. Are you ready? How this all works out? So here's these smart guys 
particularly Marshall Burke, UC Berkeley graduate student. Uh, he's the co-author of this study along with some other smart guys. I'm putting that in quotes. Said that the human population should reduce its carbon footprint and put control over the global warming. The results of inaction could be worse so not just the fact that our, our world will flood, there's other bad things that are going to happen if we don't put a, a stop to global warming. So here it is. The higher temperature makes people short-tempered. A study has found that exposure to hot environment led to aggressive behavior among humans. A team analyzed 60 studies. I wonder where they get money for these things, right? For these studies that they do, I know where they get the money from, from the government. That's where they get it for these studies, from us. A team analyzed 60 studies from a variety of disciplines, and they came to the conclusion that global warming clearly increases the danger of violent conflict. Should average temperatures increase by 4 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2050, as they have forecasted, as they have predicted... You understand? So average temperatures will go up 4 to 7 degrees by the year 2050. The study claimed armed conflict could increase in some regions by as much as 50%. It goes on. Sudden increases of domestic violence in India and Australia and more corporal violence and murders in the U.S. and Tanzania and ethnic riots in Europe and South Asia, conflicts over land in Brazil, police violence in Holland, and even historical events such as the fall of the Mayan Empire. All such examples as that were used to support this theory. The study they claim was the first such large-scale report on the issue. Never before had so much data been analyzed. And the newspaper headlines grabbed the study, and here's how they reported it. You know how they, they run the headline to grab your attention so that you'll read the report. Hotter weather actually makes us want to kill each other. That was in the Atlantic. Rise in violence linked to climate change, wrote the BBC. And global warming is greatly increasing crime and other conflict. That was from the Huffington Post. All right, so what does that have to do with total depravity? Well, the study was attacked. Some, some of the experts were saying, we don't think there's a direct connection necessarily between global warming and, and certainly the things that they're citing are not necessarily connected, so on and so forth. So some people are attacking the study. But I'm going to tell you, I think there's some, there's some truth, there's some connection. When people get hot... Right? I, we've noticed this. Even in, if you're like in business and you're in customer service, you can see a connection when July and August, September hits. For some reason, people are just more moody on the phone. I don't know if it's because you know, their air's not working or whatever it is, but there seems to be, even just experientially, there seems to be some connection between the hotter people get, the more irritable they get, right? And so they've drawn all these conclusions that I, maybe in the Mayan Empire that was the cause of their collapse. It just got so hot they killed each other. Okay, so what's that have to do with anything? What's that have to do with this? Well, here's the thing, guys. I've given this illustration before. I didn't make it up. I heard it, but it's an excellent one. It's the teabag illustration. The teabag illustration goes like this. You're a teabag. I'm a teabag. And when we are dumped in hot water, what's in our teabag comes out. The flavor of our teabag is exposed. So if you are a good tasting teabag and you're put in hot water, good flavor comes out. But if you're a rotten tasting teabag and you're put in hot water, 
then your rottenness is exposed. It's not the hot water that makes you rotten or good. Do you understand the point? The teabag is either good or it's not good. But when it is exposed to hot water, then these things are revealed. And beloved, it's the same exact thing. Even if this study is true, if there's some, something to this, and there might be, that violence increases when the temperature heats up. On some level, I think it could be true. On some level. All that exposes is our wicked, disgusting, vile hearts. How do I know that? Because Jesus was hot too. It was real hot where he was walking around, guys. He, you know, he's like, oh, I better get in the shade because I got to stay holy. No, that's not the... He's walking, there's a lot of sun, but it didn't impact him. The sun could have beat on him all day, but he never would have acted in, in sinful violence. Do you understand? And in our culture, we tend to want to try to put our blame on everything. You know, I did this because I'm hot, or I did this because I had a bad day. No, that's not true. You did this and you did that because you are morally corrupt. Your heart is depraved. You take the same person who's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, you put them in the same exact circumstances and they will respond very differently. How do we know that? Because we had the perfect example in Jesus Christ. Do you understand? We always look outside. We always look away. We never, we often don't look right here at the heart. The heart. That's where the problem is. And I said this last week. People try to get away from their problems. They think their problems are everyone else or their work or their environment or their family. And they go away. Guess what? It's still the problems are right there because the problems are really with them. It's with them. It's with us. It's with our messed up hearts. So listen. Let's get back into the text. Let's get to the text now. Let's look at that. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Apostle Paul wrote this, What then, beginning in verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, it's another way of referring to Gentiles, all people, in other words, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Wow. So this morning we're going to continue to examine 14 staggering descriptions of fallen humanity so that we might clearly see how messed up we all are naturally are. All naturally are. The 14 descriptions are in your bulletin. And last week we, we covered the first three as we looked at verses 9, 10, and 11. And again, I would encourage you to listen to the message online if you are not here. But this week, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. 12 through 18. Beginning with verse 10, Paul provides really several quotes 10 through 18, from the Old Testament. 
And he's giving those quotes from the scriptures to support the fact that all people, both Jews and Gentiles, are naturally under sin. That's what he says at the end of verse 9. That is, and we talked about this last week, under sin's enslaving power and its condemnation that results from it. Paul is continuing in this section of Romans to prove that both Jew and Gentile, uh, basically all people, are guilty before God and are by nature, beloved, children of wrath and truly worthy of God's condemnation. All people, by nature, children of wrath, condemned, depraved, guilty. Paul wanted all of his readers to see that the only hope, this is what he's prepping them for, the only hope for any of us is faith in Jesus Christ. And he will make that, begin to make that point, and, and substantiate that beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 21. So let's continue our examination since we left off last week after the first three. We'll continue examining these 14 staggering descriptions beginning with the fourth one. Okay? That's where we're going. Are you ready? This is such a wonderful, wonderful picture of humanity. No, it's not. It's not. But it is the true picture of humanity. Romans 3, look back at your text, verse 12, Paul writes this. And I'm just going to, some of them I'll spend a little more time on. Some of them I'll breeze through rather quickly. All have turned aside. All have turned aside. Any exceptions? No, no exceptions. All, every single one, both Jew and Gentile, fallen, have turned aside. The NIV, another translation of the Bible, just says it this way, all have turned away, turned away. All have turned aside, all have turned away. In the context, the picture here is one of fallen humanity turning away from God. And I want to add, not accidentally. That's not what the text communicates. It's intentional. They have turned away. They have intentionally turned aside. They have chosen to go their own way or follow their own path. So human beings in their natural state have no real interest in following after the true God or His direction for their life. So they foolishly turn their back on God and go their own way, a way that ultimately leads to their ruin. That's the picture of fallen humanity. Now why would they do that? Because they are naturally depraved. They are morally corrupt. They are under sin, under the power and tyranny of sin. And consequently, they are prone to make very bad choices, like turning away from God. The book of Isaiah and Proverbs speak to this sad reality as well. Isaiah 53, verse 6, there prophet writes, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The context is turning away from the Lord. We're like sheep. Have you ever seen sheep? It's very sad. You know, we're not, and I've said this before, it's, it's a bummer that that's the animal that we are often referred to as because they are dumb, dumb animals. But it is probably appropriate have you ever seen sheep? If the shepherd is not there to keep track of the sheep, to keep them corralled, 
they foolishly will just wander off right into danger. And we like sheep have gone astray, the writer says. In Proverbs 14.12, there is a way that seems right to a man. Seems right to him. Seems right to her. This is the path I should take. A path without God. A path with my own God. But its end is the way to death. Sin makes us stupid, foolish, dumb concerning spiritual things, concerning righteousness. All have turned aside. Five. Look back at the text, Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. It just gets better. All have become worthless. Another translation, the New American Standard Bible, uses the word useless. Instead of worthless, maybe you like that one better. All have become useless. So in what sense, beloved, has humanity, fallen humanity, become worthless or useless? Well, many people would probably object to these staggering descriptions of humanity. They would say, I don't, I don't agree with that. But what you need to understand is that sin has so ruined mankind so corrupted them that from God's perspective, from God's perspective, fallen humanity has truly become worthless and useless. Beloved, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, listen, apart from that, all of us are really useless to God. Did you hear what I just said? That's what the Scriptures teach. We think we're something. To God? No. Worthless, useless, apart from His grace. Apart from His mercy. Apart from Jesus Christ. To God, fallen, sinful humanity is like spoiled, rancid milk. Is there any use or any value or any worth to spoiled, rancid milk? It's only good to be thrown away. Absolutely good for nothing. That's fallen humanity. That's our natural condition from God's perspective because of sin. Well, let's move on. Romans 3, verse 12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. No one does good, not even one. One. Now I'm going to take a little extra time here on this point. Is Romans 3.12 really saying that no one, that is in this context, no human being in their fallen or natural state does good? Is it really saying that? Well, what else could it be saying? What else could it be saying? But someone might say, I'm going to speak on your behalf, okay? Wait a minute. I can give many examples of people who are not saved, people who are not Christians, doing good things. And I could also do that. Okay? So if you're thinking I could give examples of of people who don't even know the Lord, they have nothing to do with the Lord, but they do good things, I am with you. Okay? Do you hear me? I'm with you. 
So now we have to figure out, in light of that, this is our experience, how then do we understand Romans 3.12? It says, no one does good. No, not one. Just in case you were thinking there's some. No, not one in their fallen condition. So this, on the surface, certainly can appear confusing. But let me try to clear it up. You've got to listen close, okay? While a person living under the power of sin... Under sin, as, as it says here in Romans 3.9, living basically in their natural condition, could from our perspective, from our view, from our angle, the way we see things, could be seen and be said to be doing good things, okay? It is important to understand that from God's perspective, that is not the case at all. That is not the case at all. Why? Because, beloved, all their good deeds are tainted or spoiled or ruined by sin. What do I mean exactly? Well, let me start out by pointing that we learn from God's Word in other places, and Terry even spoke to it this morning, that it is not the good deed alone, but also the motivation behind it that matters to God and from God's perspective determines if someone has truly done good. You with me? Not just the deed, but the motivation as well. The reason for the deed. See, God looks at the heart, right? Not just what we do, but more importantly, why we do it. And because God sees the heart sees it, sees all of it, it can accurately be said by him that no man in their natural state, being under sin, does good, not even one. But why, you ask? Because, listen, the person under the power of sin, the person enslaved to sin, that person fallen humanity, is never motivated to do what they do for the glory of God, for His honor, for His praise, for His interest, for His satisfaction. But rather, they are motivated by their own glory or their own honor or their own praise or their own interest or their own satisfaction so the good that they do is ultimately done for their benefit and not for God's sometimes they may do good to avoid the negative consequences of not doing good it could be as simple as that or sometimes to gain or receive the approval of others see we don't see what's going on we see the deed We don't see the heart. And the heart is so messed up that even the person doing it sometimes deceives themselves that their intentions are pure. But they are tainted. They are tainted by sin. So we might they might do it to avoid negative consequences, to gain the approval or favor of others, or sometimes they just do it to... uh, gain some sense of self-satisfaction. 
But to one degree or another, this doing of good deeds is self-centered, not God-centered. And therefore, it is not truly doing good from God's perspective. Here's a quote. So this will say it again, because you kind of have to, you just hear it for the first time. So I think you need to hear it again. It's helpful. Here's a quote from gotquestions.org. I talked about this website last week. It seems to be a fairly helpful website, Christian website. In this particular page, they're talking about total depravity, which is what we're talking about here in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. And here's what the writer says there. Listen. Total depravity, we've already talked about this, does not mean that man is as wicked or as sinful as he could be. That's good. Okay? It doesn't mean that. We're not saying there are people, everyone's just as bad as they can. That We know that's not the case. Nor does it mean that man is without a conscience or any sense of right or wrong. No, he has a conscience. He has a sense of right or wrong. He's been wired with it. Neither does it mean that man does not or cannot do things that seem to be good when viewed from a human perspective or measured against a human standard. It does not even mean that man cannot do things that seem to conform outwardly to the law of God. It doesn't mean that. That's not what we're saying. What the Bible does teach and what total depravity does recognize is that even the, quote, good things man does are tainted by sin because they are not done for the glory of God. Fallen man. While man looks upon the outward acts and judges them to be good, God looks upon not only the outward acts, but also the inward motives that lie behind them. And because they proceed from a heart that is in rebellion against Him, God, and they are not done for His glory, even these deeds, these good deeds, are like filthy rags in His sight, which is a reference to Isaiah 64, 6, where the writer says even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags disgusting rags from God's perspective for the fallen world. In other words, fallen man's good deeds are motivated not by a desire to please God, but by our own self-interest some way, and thus are corrupted to the point where God declares that there is no one who does good, no, not one. Now that... Maybe that's the first time you've ever even heard anything like that, so that's going to be heavy for you to have to think through and deal with. But you need to think through it. You need to deal with it. Because it will impact how you think about the world, about yourself. One of a famous preacher from the 20th century, I quoted him last week, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this passage. He says this, What then is goodness? Well, goodness really means to do things for the glory of God. In fact, that's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do, whatever you do it all. Do it all for the glory of God. And he goes on to say, And your naturally good man does not do things for the glory of God. He doesn't mean anybody is born good. He means you think he's good. He's not doing, he's doing good deeds. But he's not doing those things for the glory of God. He does not think of God. He is doing it entirely for his own glory and satisfaction. Mm. See, 
We go to God's Word and we read some of this stuff and we begin to meditate on it, think it through, take in everything else that God's Word says. And for some of us, this is so difficult to actually embrace and accept because the world's message is exactly the opposite. And that's the one you hear 24-7. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Some of you may not be agreeing with that right now, but that you, you may think, I... I I'm not sure I agree with that. Well, that's okay. Work on it a little bit longer. But that doesn't mean it's not true. Just because you don't agree with it, it doesn't mean it's not true. The world likes to paint a pleasant picture of humanity, beloved. So wonderful. Basically good. But not from God's perspective. Again, it's not that they don't do good things. It's not that the fallen man can't do, quote, good things. But from God's perspective... When those things aren't being done for the glory of God, for His honor, for His satisfaction, then to Him they are truly not good. Because He created us to live not for us, not even for one another, but for Him. Do you understand? So when we don't live for Him and Him alone, then it's not good. And if we live for Him and Him alone, then all the other relationships we have would work out right. Ultimately, beloved, God's perspective is the only one that matters. Who really cares what you and I think or perceive? In the end, I don't judge you. You don't judge me. Not in the end. In the end, God is judge. And it will only be His perspective that matters. And He's given it. There is none who does good. Not from His angle, not from His view, who sees the heart perfectly. No, not one. You think anybody's going to be able to successfully challenge God on the last day? Hey God, I'm really a good person. You just don't know me. You think that's going to happen? People try that nonsense here on earth. No, you don't know me. You don't know me. You're not talking to me, Pastor. You don't know me. I'm, I have a good heart. Listen, I don't have to know you. God does. And He wrote it in His Word that you're not good, naturally. So I know. I know you and I know me. Because the Bible exposes us all. It exposes every single one of us. Let's go on, guys. Let's go on. Aren't you having fun yet? If not, here we go. Number seven, Romans 3.13. Their throat is an open grave. Their throat. I'm telling you, I can't. I've been dealing with this for two weeks. I'm just wasted. I'm wasted. I'm buried listening to reading this stuff and studying it and bringing it to you. I just want to be, I want to move on, but I know it's important to go through this. It's very important. But man, where's the good stuff? There is none here. There's none. The good stuff is Jesus Christ. And we get there in Romans chapter 3, verse 20. 21. That's the good stuff. It's not us. So here we have a rather graphic picture of man's depravity, of, of humanity in their natural sinful state under the power of sin. Here is the idea. Okay? Here's the picture. Some of the speech that comes out of people can be likened to the putrid odor 
or offensive foulness that would come out of an open grave containing a decaying body. That's the picture. You got it? You got the picture? Isn't it a wonderful picture? No, it's not. Beloved, the shameful way people are known to speak to one another, the vile and disgusting things that they choose to talk about, the filthy and wicked conversations and jokes that come out of people's mouths are like a stench or like the stench of an open grave in the nostrils of God. It stinks. It stinks. It's foul. We think it's funny. We laugh. Not to God. Not to God. Out of their throats. It's like an open grave. Putrid. And you know what? In Matthew fifteen nineteen, Jesus said that the things that proceed out of the mouth, do you know where they come from? The heart. That's where they come from. They actually come from the heart. That depraved heart. Human being is naturally depraved, morally corrupt. Jeremiah 17.9 says, and the heart is desperately sick. And their mouth gives evidence to it. Moving on. Romans 3.13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. They use their tongues to deceive. We are liars by nature. We are liars by nature. See, you know, that's great, you know. I know this very motivating sermon. Very, We're very excited to be here and hear this, but here it is. We are liars by nature. As soon as a child learns that giving a true answer to the question, did you do this? As soon as they learn that that gets them into trouble because they did do it, you know what they do? They go, yes, I did do it, mother. And I will gladly accept my punishment for doing such things that are wrong and against you and God. No, they, that would be, that would freak us out. They lie. They lie. Now listen, and when they're very small, even when they cannot even communicate except by this or this, they already figure out that if they do this, trouble comes, and they do this, they may get out of trouble, right? They lie. No one has to teach them how to lie. They don't even have to see mom and dad do it. They do it naturally. If that doesn't show you, I mean, you know, kids are beautiful. They're cute. There's so many wonderful things about them. But don't you ever forget, they're depraved little beings. And they just grow up to big depraved beings. (laughs) <laughs> parents use stories like do you remember this I remember my mom and dad I even heard it in my elementary school growing up I can't tell you how many times I heard it the boy who cried wolf Does any, do any of you remember that I don't know if any Some okay do you remember that it was a story you know don't you be the boy who cried wolf you remember what happened to him you know so the boy he lied about he said a wolf's coming a wolf's coming he went into town I'm, it's been a long time since I heard the story so just you'll get the idea a wolf's coming a wolf's coming so all the townspeople come out there's no wolf there's no wolf right so he, he but he likes this thing he gets attention so he does it again you know he comes into town a wolf's coming a wolf's coming help me and they all come out there's no wolf and then of course the third time there really is a wolf he cries there's a wolf but the people don't believe him because he's lied twice and he gets eaten isn't that a wonderful story to tell your kids? 
Don't you be the boy who cried wolf. <laughs> or, or we try to tell him, listen, you know, when you lie, you have to tell another lie to cover your lies, and you'll never be able to keep track of all your lies. So this just doesn't make good sense. You understand? <laughs> yeah, no. And we, none of that, apparently, in my experience, has worked to deter the behavior, the sinful behavior of lying. It just doesn't work. I've even known people who have told me that the one thing they won't tolerate is being lied to. I tell, I'll tolerate a lot of things. The one thing I won't put up with is being lied to. And yet, I've known those very same people to lie. Use their tongues to deceive. Number nine, Romans 3.13 Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. The venom, or poison, if you will, of asps or venomous snakes, okay, is under their lips. Under whose lips? Humanity's lips. Beloved, people attack one another, not just with their fist. We do that too. But we attack each other with our mouths, our words, And that attack seriously damages and wounds the other person. We wound one another with our venomous words. And people can be as deadly to one another with their speech as a viper is when it latches on to its prey and injects its poison. Humanity is depraved, beloved. We are naturally a wicked bunch. And that depravity often manifests itself in the way that we communicate to one another. Even to people that we say we love. Ten. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Romans chapter 3, 14. Their mouth is full, full of curses and bitterness. One writer says this, God is not telling so much what man does here as what he is. Not so much what he does, but what he is. Man is full. Fallen man is full of cursing and bitterness. And humanity proves this to be true because at times when they are provoked under the right circumstances, they are known to express great contempt, curses, cursing, Curses, contempt, and bitterness and hostility towards others. Or in some cases, even against God. Even against God. As depraved human beings, our mouths are full of curses and bitterness, and under the right conditions, it often comes pouring out of our mouth. That's really all that's going on there. Number 11. There'll be some protest to this. So Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Now again, someone might object at this point. Someone might be objecting all the way along. You know, I understand, but it's here, and this is what it says. And maybe you think you're above all this. That's not you. You're deceived. I'm telling you, you're just deceived. This is us 
in our natural state, in our fallen state. But someone will say, hey, listen, Jeremy. I don't run around trying to kill people. (laughs) This does not describe me. I am not that bad. And I will just say to you, I am glad that you don't run around trying to kill people. We are all very glad. And we are happy about that reality. But listen. That just means you're not as bad as you could be. Remember? I kept giving that definition of total depravity. That's what it means. You're just not, you're just not as bad as you, as you could be. But in the depraved and sinful heart, it remains a possibility. And you know, some of you go, no, that's impossible. No. In the depraved and sinful heart, it remains a possibility. And for far too many, it has become a reality. They have shed blood. I would also add that just because you haven't been violent towards someone doesn't necessarily mean you haven't really wanted to or that you won't ever really want to in the future. The reality is that for some, the only thing restraining them from this behavior is the consequences they might suffer. Do you understand that? In our culture, for some, the only reason this doesn't happen more often than it does is because of the restraining forces like government and police and jail time and death sentences and such. I thank God for anything. I thank God for anything that restrains the depravity of man. Because if all the restraining forces were removed, beloved, you and I couldn't exist in this world. We couldn't exist. How about 12? Romans 3.16. Quite different than John (laughs) 3.16. In their past, our ruin and misery. You know what? We need John 3.16 because of Romans 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We need John 3.16 because of Romans 3.16. This statement could truly summarize could truly summarize the entire history of humanity. A history marked by destruction and pain due to the wickedness and evil of fallen human beings. Now, I know it doesn't sound very positive to say that, and maybe you don't think that is the case, but any good student of history would agree with Romans 3.16. They would agree. One article I read titled The Most Violent Century of Human History the most violent century of human history. Which one do you think it might be? The 20th century. It's the one we just got out of. 1901 to the year 2000. That would be the 20th century. Even with all of its advances, the article goes on to say, in science and medicine and technology, right? We look back over that age, right? I mean, that was the decade of the 80s. How could there be anything wrong with that age? That's a joke for some of you. And for the rest of you, it just went, boop, Okay. Well, you know, with all the advances, science, computers, wow, we think, what an incredible century. But with all those advances, it was one of the bloodiest centuries in human history. Did you know that? Over 100 million people were killed in two world wars. An estimated 170 million civilians were murdered by their own governments. And it was in the 20th century that words like Holocaust... Genocide, abortion, terrorism, and mass suicide became well known. All in the century we just stepped out of. Things getting better? 
See? We have fancier gadgets, cooler weapons. 13. The way of peace they have not known. Romans 3.17. And the way of peace they have not known. You know, there are people who believe that someday humanity will be able to, on their own, achieve peace on earth. They believe that. Enough education, enough training, I don't know, right religion, we all come together. So there'll be no more wars, no more violence, no more murder. But beloved, that foolish fairy tale fails to acknowledge the truth of God's Word, that human beings are naturally depraved, wicked, morally corrupt, and the way of peace they have not known, nor will they know as they continue to go their own way, foolishly and rebelliously turning away from the one true God, the one God that can actually bring them peace. Finally, lastly, Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, we could spend a lot, a lot of time here, but we'll just say a few things. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Again, a picture of fallen man, fallen humanity. Beloved, one of the wisest men on earth said this in the book of Proverbs. Solomon, Proverbs verse nine, chapter 9, verse 10. He said this. You're familiar with it. The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, that is the beginning of wisdom. Listen to what Romans 3.18 says. There is no fear of God, no fear of God before their eyes. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of of wisdom, but the depraved human being under the power of sin has no reverence and awe for God. None. So consequently, they are lacking in godly wisdom and sadly remain in moral and spiritual darkness. What a sad picture of our natural condition. What a sad picture, but nonetheless true. So here's the bottom line. Just something for you to think about as we've moved through that text this morning. I've already said it, but I need to say it again, and I'll keep saying it. You should say it too. Apart from Jesus Christ, beloved, apart from Him, there is truly no hope for humanity. There is none. Beloved, there would be no hope for us right here. We're part of that humanity. There would be no hope for us. We are naturally a messed up, ruined, morally corrupt bunch. That's us. That's sin. One, again, quoting from that pastor from the 20th century, well-known pastor. He writes this concerning these words. Concerning this passage. I do not know how you feel. But every time I read this list, as it goes on from bad to worse, I begin to say again, is there any hope? And you know, there is. And it is nothing but the grace of God. Nothing but the grace of God. There's no hope in you. There's no hope in me. There's no self-hope. There's no hope in education. There's no hope in government. Not, not for this. There's no hope in anything, but only in the grace of God. Don't ever forget that, Christian. 
Don't ever forget that. When we start to forget who we truly are without Christ, okay? When we start to forget that, whenever you do, go back to Romans 3. Pick it up in verse 10. Read through verse 18. This is me. Apart from Christ, this is me. This is me in my natural state. And when we forget that, we start to take Him for granted. We start to take Jesus for granted. We start to think way too highly of ourselves. Huh? Start thinking, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm not that bad. And we start relying, here's the worst thing, we start relying on our own strengths to live for Him. Oh, that's a fool's errand. That's a phenomenal waste of time. That's a futile. Start relying on your own strength. You and I have no strength. What we produce is moral corruption in our own strength. It is only by the power and grace of God that we could ever produce anything that could be called good from God's perspective. Not only good, but done for His glory, done for His honor, done for His satisfaction. That's a work of the Spirit in the Christian's life and nothing else. Nothing else. You and I would have no hope apart from the grace of God, apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within every single one of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. On our own, beloved, on our own, we would all stand guilty and condemned before God. Every single one of us. And on our own, we could never truly honor Him or glorify God with our lives. Did you hear what I said? That's what the Bible is saying. On our own, no hope, no way. Impossible. Passages like this one in Romans should increase our gratitude towards the Lord. That's what it should do. Okay? You don't walk out here going, oh, man, I want it to be lifted up. I'm doing it right now. If you know Jesus Christ, you should be lifted up. Because look where He lifted us up from. You see that? you got to see how low we were. Then you realize how much Jesus did. Then you realize. You think you're not that bad and Jesus came and helped you out a little bit? Then you're like, yeah, it's all good. But when you see the real picture of you and me as God sees it, then your heart starts to change towards Christ. To a greater degree, you start to, you start to be blown away by the fact that He ever rescued you, that He ever saved you, that He ever gave up His life to redeem you. It should bring a greater intensity to our worship. That's what it should do. When we understand these things, when we think on these things, we sung so many songs this morning that that revealed these realities. Simply to the cross I cling. Simply to the cross I cling. And the only thing I bring to the cross is my sin, my depravity, my mess. Apart from the cross, I am a condemned man. I'm a hopeless man. I mean, that, that should move you to worship Him to a greater degree, to a greater level, when you understand these things. And to live your life in a, in a more sacrificial way. You know, Terry talked about sacrificial giving. You want to know how to be motivated towards sacrificial giving? 
Think about you without Christ. Think about your condition. Think about where you would be. And then giving, whether it be money or time, it's really not even an issue anymore. All right, Lord, what do you want? What do you want? I'll give it to you. You see? That's the way to get motivated correctly, to think rightly about yourself and about the gospel of Jesus Christ, about what he has accomplished. And finally, for the non-Christian, verses like these in the Bible, by non-Christian I mean you don't have a saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So for you, these verses are designed to move you to give up on any self-effort to make yourself right with or acceptable to God because you've got to see it's impossible. It's impossible. Read the section. That's you in your fallen state. You apart from Christ. How in the world is that person ever going to become acceptable to God? It cannot be. That's why it's only through faith in Christ and His righteousness because we don't have any. We don't have any. You must trust in Him. That's what you must do if you're not a Christian this morning. You must trust in Him. And by the way, it's not a one-time trust. We keep trusting in Him. Every single day I'm trusting in Him for my salvation, for my sanctification, for my hope, for my future resurrection. I keep trusting in Him. I don't trust in Him for a week or a year or until I feel like I'm good enough. I'm never good enough. He is good enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Some of it is hard. Some of it is very controversial and we know that the world rejects it. But Father, there's even some here maybe that would resist it, object to it. Father, I pray that you would, you would do your work in their hearts. You'd break through all that stuff, all that mess, all those walls, all that rebellion, all that corruption. You'd help them see the truth. You'd help us all see it, Father. To really come to grips with who we are apart from Christ. This is who we are. This is, we're not born good people. We are born depraved. And that depravity manifests itself in a host of ways. But the reality is every part of us, every part of our being is corrupted by sin. That's who we are. Our hearts are sometimes deceptive. We lie to ourselves, telling ourselves we're better than we really are. Father, we need to come to grips. Every single person needs to come to grips with the reality of who we are. Then and only then do sinners flee to Christ. Then and only then do they stop messing around, thinking they can make themselves somehow right with God. But they run to the cross, seeing that there and only there is the only hope that they have. To be reconciled to you, Father. That is their only hope. It is our only hope. And Father, for those of us who have done that, we need to see again who we are if we hadn't have done that, Father. This is who we are. You remove Christ. You, you remove us from Christ. You put us outside of Christ. This is us. And the truth is, Father, these nasty things still sometimes manifest themselves in our lives. Because we still got this sinful body we're living in. 
And it's only because of God, you, your work in us through your spirit that we are being changed and transformed. It is only through you, God, and your spirit living in us that we can actually live for you now in a way that is good, that honors you, that glorifies you. It is only because of your spirit that lives inside of us. It is his righteous fruits that are manifested in the Christian's life. Therefore, we cannot even take credit for it. We can say, glory be to God by the grace of God. I am what I am. And that's the only reason. Father, move in our hearts now. Let this this word that you've given us, let it impact us. Let it change us. In Jesus' name, amen.